Welcome to another in-depth exploration of biblical missionaries, written by Borge Schantz, edited for audio and produced by the Ambassador Group. Exploration 6, Esther and Mordecai. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther chapter 4, verse 14, New International Version. Esther was used to carry out a high-level, specialized mission within the dangerous political heart of the Persian Empire. Her mission involved her in a series of striking contrasts an orphaned female of a despised ethnic and religious minority living in the superpower of her day, she became the wife of the Persian king. This was no rags-to-riches fairy tale. Rather, she was lifted from obscurity and groomed to carry out a highly specialized mission. It required of her the risky strategy of working at first undercover. Later, she had to make a perilous full disclosure of her ethnicity and faith. Supported by her cousin and foster father, Mordecai, her daring witness at the intrigue-ridden court of the Persian Empire saved her people, reversed their low social status, and made them empire-wide objects of admiration. No doubt, as a result of her faithfulness, Knowledge of the true God became more widespread among their heathen captors. Though not your typical missionary story, the narrative of Esther and Mordecai does present some interesting principles that can help us to understand what it means to witness in peculiar circumstances. Listen to Esther 1, verses 2 to 20. What is happening? What things about this story are hard to understand from our perspective today? As you listen, remember that a lot of details are not presented. Esther chapter 1, verses 2 to 20 say, In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was in Shushan, or Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire, in the palace or castle. In the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his princes and his courtiers, the chief officers of the Persian and Median army, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were there before him, while he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor and excellence of his majesty for many days even 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast for all the people present in Shushan, the capital, both great and small. There were hangings of fine white cloth 
of green and of blue cotton, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings or rods and marble pillars. The couches of gold and silver rested on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, white marble, mother of pearl, and precious colored stones. Drinks were served in different kinds of golden goblets, and there was royal wine in abundance, according to the liberality of the king. And drinking was according to the law. No one was compelled to drink, for the king had directed all the officials of his palace to serve only as each guest desired. Also Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the royal house, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the king's heart was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bizla, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zithar, and Carcas, the seven eunuchs who ministered to King Ahasuerus as attendants, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, conveyed by the eunuchs. Therefore the king was enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king spoke to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were familiar with law and judgment. Those next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Mires, Marcina, and Mimuken, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who were in the king's presence and held first place in the kingdom. He said according to the law, What is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not done the bidding of King Ahasuerus, conveyed by the eunuchs. And Mimukin answered before the king and the princes, Vashti the queen has not only done wrong to the king, but also to all the princes and to all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For this deed of the queen will become known to all women, making their husbands contemptible in their eyes, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she did not come. This very day the ladies of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will be telling it to all the king's princes, so contempt and wrath in plenty will arise. If it pleases the king, let a royal command go forth from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and Medes, so that it may not be changed, that Vashti is to be divorced and come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the king's decree is made and proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, extensive as it is, all wives will give honor to their husbands, high and low. The week-long banquet that King Ahasuerus gave for his nobles and officials seems extravagant, even for someone at the pinnacle of political power, far beyond what most Christians could find acceptable. Esther chapter 1 verses 7 and 8 describe the policy of drinking of alcoholic beverages in the palace this way. Drinks were served in different kinds of golden goblets, 
and there was royal wine in abundance, according to the liberality of the king, and drinking was according to the law. No one was compelled to drink, for the king had directed all the officials of his palace to serve only as each guest desired. The unrestricted consumption of alcohol was to be expected on such occasions. Such banquets were not unprecedented. Records exist of ancient kings bragging about how, having entertained thousands of guests on special occasions, excessive drinking in such circumstances certainly clouded the king's judgment to the point that he ordered his wife Vashti to provide entertainment for the king's drunken, all-male gathering. This was far beneath her dignity as a married woman and as a member of the royal family. Whatever her response, she faced the dilemma of losing status and her courageous choice to retain self-esteem in the face of an autocratic ruler's base desires prepares the reader to understand the powerful good that a principled woman could exert, even in a male-dominated royal court. Meanwhile, though, we have to deal with the actions of Esther. Esther chapter 2 verse 3 gives the impression that these women were not volunteers. The king issued the decree, and so Esther had to come. Had she refused? Who knows the outcome? 1 Corinthians 9 verses 19 to 23 say, For although I am free in every way from anyone's control, I have made myself a bondservant to everyone, so that I might gain the more for Christ. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To men under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those without, outside law, I became as one without law, not that I am without the law of God and lawless toward him, but that I am especially keeping within and committed to the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, wanting in discernment, I have become weak, wanting in discernment, that I might win the weak and overscrupulous. I have, in short, become all things to all men, that I might, by all means, at all costs, and in any and every way, save some by winning them to faith in Jesus Christ. And I do this for the sake of the good news, the gospel, in order that I may become a participator in it and a share in its blessings along with you. In what ways can we apply the principles seen in these verses to what happened with Esther? Or do they apply? So far, in the story, the real heroine is Vashti, who then disappears from history. Her modesty and stand on principle opened the way for Esther. In some cases, though, principled stands don't always lead to an obvious good. In the end, why should we take principled stands, even if we don't know the outcome of our actions? Esther in the Court of the King Esther chapter 2 verses 10 and 20 reveal 
that Queen Esther was hiding her cultural background information and affiliation. Verse 10, Esther had not made known her nationality or her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her not to do so. Verse 20, Now Esther had not yet revealed her nationality or her people, for she obeyed Mordecai's command to her to fear God and execute his commands, just as when she was being brought up by him. What situations might arise where nationality or religious affiliation should be hidden, at least for a time? Let's listen to the story of Jesus and the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verses 1 to 26, again from the Amplified Bible. Now when the Lord knew, learned, became aware that the Pharisees had been told that Jesus was winning and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. He left Judea and returned to Galilee. It was necessary for him to go through Samaria, and in doing so he arrived at a Samaritan town called Sychar, near the tract of land that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down to rest by the well. It was then about the sixth hour, about noon. Presently, when a woman of Samaria came along to draw water, Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone off into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan and a woman, for a drink? For the Jews have nothing to do with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you had only known and had recognized God's gift and who this is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him instead, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, no drawing bucket, and the well is deep. How then can you provide living water? Where do you get your living water? Are you greater than and superior to our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well and who used to drink from it himself and his sons and his cattle also? Jesus answered her, all who drink of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever takes a drink of the water that I will give him shall never, no, never be thirsty any more. But the water that I will give him shall become a spring of water, welling up, flowing, bubbling, continually within him unto, into, for eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I may never get thirsty, nor have to come continually all the way here to draw. At this, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come back here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have spoken truly in saying, I have no husband. 
for you have had five husbands, and the man you are now living with is not your husband. In this you have spoken truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I see and understand that you are a prophet. Our forefathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where it is necessary and proper to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither merely in this mountain nor merely in Jerusalem. You Samaritans do not know what you are worshipping. You worship what you do not comprehend. We do know what we are worshipping. We worship what we have knowledge of and understand. For after all, salvation comes from among the Jews. A time will come, however, indeed it is already here, when the true, genuine worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Reality. For the Father is seeking just such people as these as his worshippers. God is a spirit, a spiritual being, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Reality. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, the anointed one, and when he arrives, he will tell us everything we need to know and make it clear to us. Jesus said to her, I who now speak with you am he. Why did Jesus tell her so openly that he was the Messiah, when among his own people he was not so forthcoming? How does this account, perhaps, help us to understand Mordecai's words to Esther? Twice, Mordecai charged Esther not to reveal her nationality and family background. This has troubled some commentators who have questioned the need for this attitude of concealment, especially during a time that the Jewish people were not threatened. Could she not have been a witness about her God to these pagans if she were open about who she was and the God she worshipped? Or could it be argued that to be a Jew lacked credibility at the Persian court and that revealing her ethnicity would have hindered her in gaining access to the king when she pleaded for her people? However, it appears that even before the threat occurred, Mordecai had warned Esther not to reveal her identity. The fact is that the Bible does not tell us the reason for his words to her. However, as we can see with the example of Jesus, one does not have to reveal everything at once in every circumstance. Prudence is a virtue. Meanwhile, why did Jesus speak so openly to the woman at the well and not to his own people? Christ was far more reserved when he spoke to them. That which had been withheld from the Jews, and which the disciples were afterward enjoined to keep secret, was revealed to her. Jesus saw that she would make use of her knowledge in bringing others to share his grace. The author of those words was Ellen G. White in her book The Desire of Ages. That insight is found on page 190. 
Have you ever been in a situation in which you deemed it prudent not to say too much about your faith or your beliefs? What reasons did you have? As you look back now, what might you have done differently, if anything? For such a time as this, Esther chapter 2, verse 19, through chapter 5, verse 8. In Esther chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, the plot of the story starts to unfold. Mordecai, a Jew, following the commandment against idolatry, refused to bow down to Haman, a mere man. Furious, Haman sought a way to avenge himself for what he took as a slight. Mordecai, by his actions, in a way was witnessing among these pagans about the true God. What excuse did Haman use to try to rid the empire of the Jews? Let's listen to Esther chapter 3, verses 8 to 13, and a reference in the New Testament book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, verse 26. First, Esther chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from every other people. Neither do they keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not for the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that it may be brought into the king's treasuries. And the king took his signet ring from his hand, with which to seal his letters by the king's authority, and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the Jews' enemy. And the king said to Haman, The silver is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's secretaries were called in on the thirteenth day of the first month, and all that Haman had commanded was written to the king's chief rulers and to the governors who were over all the provinces and to the princes of each people, to every province in its own scripts and to each people in their own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, and it was sealed with the king's signet ring. And letters were sent by special messengers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to slay, and to do away with all Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, and to seize their belongings as spoil. In Acts chapter 17 Verse 26, And he made from one common origin, one source, one blood, all nations of men to settle on the face of the earth, 
having definitely determined their allotted periods of time and the fixed boundaries of their habitation, their settlements, lands, and abodes. What does this tell us about how easy it is to let cultural differences blind us to the humanity of all people? As Haman's plot was made known, Mordecai expressed his grief visibly, using one of the Jewish religious rituals mentioned in the book of Esther. He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, wailing loudly and bitterly, Esther 4.1, New International Version. In the meantime, Esther prepared to go before the king. She would become a Jewish breaker of royal Persian law by heroically entering the king's presence without invitation. As part of a plan to foil Haman's plot, the king admitted her and accepted her invitation to dine. Esther now takes the lead in the drama faced by the Jewish exiles across all of Persia. In this story, Esther showed self-denial and heroism, Esther 4.16, tact, Esther 5.8, and courage, Esther 7.6. Through Esther the queen, the Lord accomplished a mighty deliverance for his people. At a time when it seemed that no power could save them, Esther and the women associated with her, by fasting and prayer and prompt action, met the issue and brought salvation to their people. Christ was far more reserved when he spoke to them. That which had been withheld from the Jews, and which the disciples were afterward enjoined to keep secret, was revealed to her. Jesus saw that she would make use of her knowledge in bringing others to share his grace. Those are Ellen G. White's comments in the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 3, page 1140. Esther chapter 4, verse 14, the New King James Version, includes Mordecai's famous words to Esther. Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In what ways might the principle behind these words apply to you right now? Mordecai and Haman Despite his quiet life of service, Mordecai let his faith be known, if through no other means than his refusal to bow down before Haman. People noticed and they admonished him, but he refused to compromise his faith. Esther 3 verses 3 to 5 say, Then the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now when they spoke to him day after day, and he paid no attention to them, they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's conduct would stand 
for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or do him reverence, he was very angry. This surely was a witness to others. Now let's hear Esther chapter 6 verses 1 to 3 read from the Amplified Bible. Esther chapter 6 verse 1 says, On that night the king could not sleep, and he ordered that the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, be brought and they were read before the king. And it was found written there how Mordecai had told of Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's attendants who guarded the door, who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been given Mordecai for this? Then the king's servants who ministered to him said, Nothing has been done for him. What does this tell you about Mordecai? What lessons do you learn about how God's people can function, even witness, in foreign lands? Though Mordecai obviously was following the Lord, nevertheless he showed allegiance and loyalty to the sovereign of the nation in which he lived. While refusing to bow before a man, he still was a good citizen, in that, as you will hear, he exposed a plot against the king. Though we can't read too much into the fact that he hadn't been honored for this act, very possibly he did it and then just went on his way, not expecting any reward. In time, though, as the story will show, his good deed was more than rewarded. His example here is perhaps best expressed by these words, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Matthew 22, verse 21, New King James Version. Let's get back to our dramatic story by listening to Esther chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. After we hear the details of the story, the question we will be able to answer is, how was Esther able to save her people? Chapter 5 On the third day of the fast, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the royal or inner court of the king's palace opposite his throne room. The king was sitting on his throne, facing the main entrance of the palace. And when the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, she obtained a favor in his sight, and he held out to her the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king said to her, What will you have, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of the kingdom. And Esther said, If it seems good to the king, let the king and Haman come this day to the dinner that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Cause Haman to come quickly, that what Esther has said may be done. So the king and Haman came to the dinner that Esther had prepared. And during the serving of wine, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? 
even to the half of the kingdom it shall be performed. Then Esther said, My petition and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and to perform my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the dinner that I shall prepare for them, and I will do tomorrow as the king has said. Haman went away that day joyful and elated in heart. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate, refusing to stand up or show fear before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. There he sent and called for his friends and Zeresh, his wife. And Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches, the abundance of his ten sons, all the things in which the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman added, Yes, and today Queen Esther did not let any man come with the king to the dinner she had prepared but myself. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all the, this benefits me nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then Zeresh his wife and all his friends said to him, let a gallows be made, fifty cubits, seventy-five feet high, and in the morning speak to the king, that Mordecai may be hanged on it. Then you go in merrily with the king to the dinner. And the thing pleased Haman, and he caused the gallows to be made. Chapter 6 On that night the king could not sleep and he ordered that the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, be brought, and that they were read before the king. And it was found written there how Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's attendants who guarded the door, who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been given Mordecai for this? Then the king's servants who ministered to him said, Nothing has been done for him. The king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just come into the outer court of the king's palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for him. And the king's servants said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman said to himself, To whom would the king delight to do honor more than to me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal apparel be brought which the king has worn, and the horse which the king has ridden, and a royal crown be set on his head, and let the apparel and the horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes. Let him array the man whom the king delights to honor, and conduct him on horseback through the open square of the city, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, 
make haste and take the apparel and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have spoken. Then Haman took the apparel and the horse, and conducted Mordecai on horseback through the open square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai came again to the king's gate, but Haman hastened to his house, mourning and having his head covered. And Haman recounted to Zeresh his wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zeresh his wife said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the offspring of the Jews, you cannot prevail against him, but shall surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's attendants came and hastily brought Haman to the dinner that Esther had prepared. Esther chapter 7 So the king and Haman came to dine with Esther the queen. And the king said again to Esther on the second day, when wine was being served, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted. And what is your request? Even to the half of the kingdom it shall be performed. Then Queen Esther said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, slain, and wiped out of existence. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I would have held my tongue. For our affliction is not to be compared with the damage this will do to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who dares presume in his heart to do that? And Esther said, An adversary and an enemy, even this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and queen. And the king arose from the feast in his wrath and went into the palace garden. And Haman stood up to make request for his life to Queen Esther for he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. When the king returned out of the palace garden into the place of the drinking of wine, Haman was falling upon the couch where Esther was. Then said the king, Will he even forcibly assault the queen in my presence, in my own palace? As the king spoke the words, the servants covered Haman's face. Then said Harbona, one of the attendants serving the king, Behold, the gallows fifty cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, whose warning saved the king, stands at the house of Haman. And the king said, Hang him on it! So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath was pacified. Esther chapter 8 On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the Jew's enemy, to Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. 
And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. And Esther spoke yet again to the king, and fell down at his feet, and besought him with tears to avert the evil plot of Haman the Agagite, and his that he had devised against the Jews. Then the king held out to Esther the golden scepter. So Esther arose and stood before the king. And as she said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that shall come upon my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Then the king Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and him they have hanged upon the gallows, because he laid his hand upon the Jews. Write also concerning the Jews, as it pleases you in the king's name, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for writing which is in the king's name, and sealed with the king's ring, no man can reverse. Then the king's scribes were called in the third month, the month of Sivan, on the twenty-third day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, to the chief rulers, and the governors, and princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, one hundred and twenty-seven provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, and to the Jews according to their writing, and according to their language. He wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed it with the king's ring, and sent letters by messengers on horseback, riding on swift steeds, mules, and young dromedaries, used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud. In it the king granted the Jews, who were in every city, to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to slay, and to, to wipe out any armed force that might attack them, their little ones and women, and to take the enemy's goods for spoil. On one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, a copy of the writing was to be issued as a decree in every province and as a proclamation to all peoples, and the Jews should be ready on that day to avenge themselves upon their enemies. So the couriers, who were mounted on swift beasts that were used in the king's service, went out, being hurried and urged on by the king's command, and the decree was released in Shushan, the capital. And Mordecai went forth from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white, with a great crown of gold, and with a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light, a dawn of new hope, 
and a gladness and a joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his decree came, the Jews had gladness and joy, a feast and a holiday. And many from among the peoples of the land submitted themselves to Jewish rite and became Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen upon them. The accounts of Esther's two banquets brought the story to its crisis point. They also record the great reversal of the plotted ethnic extermination. On the way, the story exposes the difference between true honor and self-honor, and it records the punishment of the villain. These court intrigues had far-reaching consequences. They give us a glimpse into the behind-the-scenes workings of an absolute monarch and his court. Esther and Mordecai used their positions, their knowledge of the culture in which they lived, and their faith in God's covenant promises to his people to bring about their deliverance. God keeps his promises. When some Gentiles became Jews. Let's listen to Esther chapter 8. I will tell you when we are at verse 17. And after reading that verse, ask this question. How can we understand this in terms of outreach and witness? Esther chapter 8 says, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the Jews' enemy, to Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. And Esther spoke yet again to the king, and fell down at his feet and besought him with tears to avert the evil plot of Haman the Agagite, and his scheme that he had devised against the Jews. Then the king held out to Esther the golden scepter. So Esther arose and stood before the king. And she said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that shall come upon my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Then the king Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and him they have hanged upon the gallows, because he laid his hand upon the Jews. Write also concerning the Jews as it pleases you in the king's name, and to seal it with the king's signet ring, for writing which is in the king's name, and sealed with the king's ring, no man can reverse. Then the king's scribes were called in the third month, the month of Sivan, on the twenty-third day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, to the chief rulers, and the governors and princes of the provinces from 
India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, and to the Jews according to their writing and according to their language. He wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed it with the king's ring, and sent letters by messengers on horseback, riding on swift steeds, mules, and young dromedaries, used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud. In it, the king granted the Jews who were in every city to gather, and defend their lives, to destroy, to slay, and to wipe out any armed force that might attack them, their little ones and women, and to take the enemy's goods for spoil. On one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, a copy of the writing was to be issued as a decree in every province and as a proclamation to all peoples, and that the Jews should be ready on that day to avenge themselves upon their enemies. So the couriers, who were mounted on swift beasts, that were used in the king's service, went out, being hurried and urged on by the king's command, and the decree was released in Shushan, the capital. And Mordecai went forth from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white, with a great crown of gold and with a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light, a dawn of new hope and gladness and joy and honor. Okay. Now we are at verse 17, which says, And in every province, and in every city, wherever the king's command and his decree came, the Jews had gladness and joy, a feast and a holiday. And many from among the peoples of the land submitted themselves to Jewish rite and became Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen upon them. No question, the book of Esther is not a typical story about outreach and witness. And yet we can see something like this scenario happening here toward the end. As a result of the king's edict on behalf of the Jews, many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Esther 8 verse 17. Some commentators argue that theirs could not have been a true conversion experience since fear and anxiety should have no place in proselytizing. While that's true, who knows in the longer run, whatever their motives at first, might have responded to the working of the Holy Spirit, especially after seeing great differences between their beliefs and the belief and worship of the one true God. Listen to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. For God's holy wrath and indignation are revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who in their wickedness repress and hinder the truth and make it inoperative. For that which is known about God is evident to them and made plain in their inner consciousness, because God himself has shown it to them. For ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature and attributes, that is, his eternal power and divinity, have been made intelligible and clearly discernible in and through the things that have been made, his handiworks. So men are without excuse, altogether 
without any defense or justification. How might the concepts taught in these verses come into play with these people, especially in the context of this story? In the original decrees against the Jews, not only were the Jews to be killed, but the ones to do it were told that they should plunder their possessions. Esther chapter 3, verse 13, New King James Version. Also, when the Jews were given permission to kill their enemies, they too were told that they could plunder the possessions of their enemies. However, three times in the book of Esther, chapter 9, verses 10, 15, and 16, New King James Version, it specifically says that the Jews did not lay a hand on the plunder, New King James Version. Though the texts don't say why, the fact that it was mentioned three times shows the emphasis that was placed on this act. Most likely, they refrained because they wanted it known that they were acting out of self-defense and not greed. How can you make sure that in your outreach and witness to others, you don't do anything that would cause people to question your motives? Why is this important? Let's continue exploring. Ellen G. White wrote a book entitled Prophets and Kings. In one of the chapters, named In the Days of Queen Esther, pages 598 to 606, she shared these details of Esther's experience and a glimpse ahead of the future. Under the favor shown them by Cyrus, Nearly 50,000 of the children of the captivity had taken advantage of the decree permitting their return. These, however, in comparison with the hundreds of thousands scattered throughout the provinces of Medo-Persia, were but a mere remnant. The great majority of the Israelites had chosen to remain in the land of their exile rather than undergo the hardships of the return journey and the reestablishment of their desolated cities and homes. A score or more of years passed by, when a second decree, quite as favorable as the first, was issued by Darius Hystapses, the monarch then ruling. Thus did God in mercy provide another opportunity for the Jews in the Medo-Persian realm to return to the land of their fathers. The Lord foresaw the troublous times that were to follow during the reign of Xerxes, the Ahasuerus of the book of Esther, and he not only wrought a change of feeling in the hearts of men in authority, but also inspired Zechariah to plead with the exiles to return. Ho, ho, come forth, and flee from the land of the north, was a message given the scattered tribes of Israel 
who had become settled in many lands far from their former home. I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven, saith the Lord. Deliver thyself, O Zion, that dwellest with the daughter of Babylon. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, After the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you. For he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. For, behold, I will shake mine hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants. And ye shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Zechariah 2, verses 6-9 through It was still the Lord's purpose, as it had been from the beginning, that his people should be a praise in the earth, to the glory of his name. During the long years of their exile, he had given them many opportunities to return to their allegiance to him. Some had chosen to listen and to learn. Some had found salvation in the midst of affliction. Many of these were to be numbered among the remnant that should return. They were likened by inspiration to, quote, the highest branch of the high cedar, unquote, which was to be planted, quote, upon a high mountain and eminent, in the mountain of the height of Israel, unquote. Ezekiel seventeen, twenty-two and 23. It was those whose spirit God had raised, who had returned under the decree of Cyrus. But God ceased not to plead with those who voluntarily remained in the land of their exile. And through manifold agencies, he made it possible for them also to return. The large number, however, of those who failed to respond to the decree of Cyrus remained unimpressible to later influences. And even when Zechariah warned them to flee from Babylon without further delay, they did not heed the invitation. Meanwhile, Conditions in the Medo-Persian realm were rapidly changing. Darius Hystaspes, under whose reign the Jews had been shown marked favor, was succeeded by Xerxes the Great. It was during his reign that those of the Jews who had failed of heeding the message to flee were called upon to face a terrible crisis. Having refused to take advantage of the way of escape God had provided, now they were brought face to face with death. Through Haman the Agagite, an unscrupulous man high in authority in Medo-Persia, Satan worked at this time to counterwork the purposes of God. Haman cherished bitter malice against Mordecai, a Jew. Mordecai had done Haman no harm, but had simply refused to show him worshipful reverence. Scorning to Lay hands on Mordecai alone, Haman plotted to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. Esther 3, verse 6 Misled by the false statements of Haman, Xerxes was induced to issue a decree providing for the massacre of all the Jews, scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of the Medo-Persian kingdom. Verse 8. A certain day was appointed on which the Jews were to be destroyed and their property confiscated. 
Little did the king realize the far-reaching results that would have accompanied the complete carrying out of this decree. Satan himself, the hidden instigator of the scheme, was trying to rid the earth of those who preserved the knowledge of the true God. In every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews. And fasting, and weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Esther four verse three. The decree of the Medes and Persians could not be revoked. Apparently, there was no hope. All the Israelites were doomed to destruction. But the plots of the enemy were defeated by a power that reigns among the children of men, in the providence of God. Esther, a Jewess who feared the Most High, had been made queen of the Medo-Persian kingdom. Mordecai was a near relative of hers. In their extremity, they decided to appeal to Xerxes in behalf of their people. Esther was to venture into his presence as an intercessor. Who knoweth? said Mordecai. Whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this, verse fourteen. The crisis that Esther faced demanded quick, earnest action. But both she and Mordecai realized that unless God should work mightily in their behalf, their own efforts would be unavailing. So Esther took time for communion with God, the source of her strength. Go," she directed Mordecai. "Gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish." Verse sixteen. The events that followed in rapid succession, the appearance of Esther before the king, the marked favor shown her, the banquets of the king and queen with Haman as the only guest, the troubled sleep of the king, the public honor shown Mordecai, and the humiliation and fall of Haman upon the discovery of his wicked plot—all these are parts of a familiar story. God wrought marvelously for His penitent people, and a counter decree issued by the king, allowing them to fight for their lives, was rapidly communicated to every part of the realm by mounted couriers, who were hastened and pressed on by the king's commandment. And in every province and in every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day, and many of the people of the land became Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. Esther eight, verses fourteen and seventeen. On the day appointed for their destruction, the Jews gathered themselves together in their cities throughout all the provinces. Of the king Ahasuerus, to lay hand on such as sought their hurt, and no man could withstand them, for the fear of them fell upon all people. 
Angels that excel in strength had been commissioned by God to protect His people while they stood for their lives. Esther 9, verses 2 and 16 Mordecai was given the position of honor formerly occupied by Haman. He was next unto King Ahasuerus and great among the Jews and accepted of the multitude of his brethren. Esther 10.3 And he sought to promote the welfare of Israel. Thus did God bring his chosen people once more into favor at the Medo-Persian court, making possible the carrying out of his purpose to restore them to their own land. But it was not until several years later, in the seventh year of Artaxerxes I, the successor of Xerxes the Great, that any considerable number returned to Jerusalem under Ezra. The trying experiences that came to God's people in the days of Esther were not peculiar to that age alone. The revelator, looking down the ages to the close of time, has declared, The dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Revelation 12.17 Some who today are living on the earth will see these words fulfilled. The same Spirit that in ages past led men to persecute the true church will in the future lead to the pursuance of a similar course toward those who maintain their loyalty to God. Even now, preparations are being made for this last great conflict. The decree that will finally go forth against the remnant people of God will be very similar to that issued by Ahasuerus against the Jews. Today, the enemies of the true church see in the little company keeping the Sabbath commandment a Mordecai at the gate. The reverence of God's people for His law is a constant rebuke to those who have cast off the fear of the Lord and are trampling on His Sabbath. Satan will arouse indignation against the minority who refuse to accept popular customs and traditions. Men of position and reputation will join with the lawless and the vile to take counsel against the people of God. Wealth, genius, education will combine to cover them with contempt. Persecuting rulers, ministers, and church members will conspire against them with voice and pen, by boasts, threats, and ridicule, they will seek to overthrow their faith. By false representations and angry appeals, men will stir up the passions of the people. Not having a, thus saith the scriptures, to bring against the advocates of the Bible Sabbath, they will resort to oppressive enactments to supply the lack. To secure popularity and patronage, legislators will yield to the demand for Sunday laws. But those who fear God cannot accept an institution that violates a precept of the Decalogue. On this battlefield will be fought 
the last great conflict in the controversy between truth and error, and we are not left in doubt as to the issue. Today, as in the days of Esther and Mordecai, the Lord will vindicate His truth and His people. Did you notice how history will be repeated? Let's reread one paragraph. The decree that will finally go forth against the remnant people of God will be very similar to that issued by Ahasuerus against the Jews. Today, the enemies of the true church see in the little company keeping the Sabbath commandment a Mordecai at the gate. The reverence of God's people. For his law, is a constant rebuke to those who have cast off the fear of the Lord, and are trampling on His Sabbath. Here are three independent situations to contemplate. Situation one: Do you see any parallel between the edict that was brought against the Jews and what will happen in the last days? As the issue of the mark of the beast comes to the forefront, situation two, both ancient Jews and Christians disputed the right of the Book of Esther to have a place in the Old Testament canon. It did not appear in the Old Testament used by the community that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls, nor in the Old Testament. Of the churches of ancient Turkey and Assyria, the name of God does not appear in the Book of Esther, while there are about one hundred and ninety references to the heathen king. There are no references to sacrifice, temple, or worship, although prayer and fasting are mentioned. Finally, the covenant. Emphasis on forgiveness and mercy is not mentioned, and yet the Lord saw fit to include it in the canon. Why? What powerful spiritual lesson can we take from the Book of Esther about how God can work in our lives for good, even amid what appears to be very difficult circumstances? Situation three. Sometimes missionaries and others doing outreach do not openly talk about their identity and their work. What are some valid reasons, if any, to do that, especially in the context of mission? Sometimes, for instance, missionaries are very careful not to say who they are, especially in countries that are hostile to Christian witness. Imagine that you are a full-time missionary. Maybe you are. If you are impressed to not reveal right away who you are, how can you do it in a way that is not being dishonest or deceitful? AmbassadorGroup.org. Thanks for listening.
This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.